This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the best of the minefield from 2022 as part of RN Summer. Wonderful to have your company wherever you are around the country and whatever it is that you're doing that isn't work, at least I hope. Uh, if it helps, Scott Stevens, my co-host, Waleed Ali, my name. We're not doing work. We did this ages ago, um, <laughs> which is how we're able not to do work while you... Anyway, um, Scott, <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy this series every year, but the, I missed the meeting again. Oh, would you not have chosen this one? No, I just missed the meeting. Okay. It's almost like I find out what the best of our show for a given year is when you tell me. Yeah, but <laughs> it's a, it's I mean, situation. what this actually implies, though, is that you remember the shows that we've done over the course of the year. And you yeah, say, oh, that, yeah, that's right. I really like that one. Sure. Okay. And and pointing out that my presence at the meeting would make exactly no difference <laughs> isn't an answer. It's not. It's not. <laughs> to the point that, anyway, um, we actually better get into this because we we've got to fit it in yeah. uh, to the same amount of time and us rabbiting on now doesn't help. But one of the key or distinguishing features of this year was that we introduced a new sort of a series that's based on the idea of a book club, but isn't necessarily about books. And we did a bunch of them, uh, and you're going to hear more details about that. But this one kind of was a book. It really was and a I'm book. I'm intrigued that you chose this one. Yeah. Well, it actually originates with a bet, Waleed. Someone bet me that I couldn't get you to read Jane Austen's Emma. <laughs> and so what I, in fact, did is came up with this whole elaborate ruse that we were going to... No, that's not actually true. Uh, Jane Austen's <laughs> yeah. Emma is, in fact... I mean, it's the last published book. Uh, that she wrote during her lifetime. It's also one of the great, I think, books of moral philosophy. Uh, we did Queen at Live Aid. We did Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, we did HBO Succession. But for me, the real highlight of the year, and certainly our fans seem to think so too, was delving through the moral universe uh, inhabited by Emma Woodhouse. Um, so this was our second in the Minefield Not Quite Book Club series of the year, it was a particularly rich conversation about virtue and vice, the nature of friendship, the limits of egotism, the relationship between egotism uh, don't tell them what it's and all, epistemology. Tell, they're about oh, to hear it. Well, lead, Stop ev- telling them, Scott. Everything, everything no, is in this show. Stop. You've, t- you've said too much. No. We'll, we'll deliver you now to what is obviously a masterpiece. Enjoy. Sorry. I just want to make one thing clear up front. Mm. And I don't do this as a disclaimer. I do this more as, I don't know, open disclosure, Mm. because it may in some way explain what's to come. I don't know what's to come, but it might be relevant to the listener. This one was really all you're doing. And I know you had hearty support from Sinead, our Mm. producer. And so... Well, I don't even know if I cast a vote. It was irrelevant because I was outnumbered before I turned my mind to it. I, but I will say it would never have occurred to me to choose this. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I was not even remotely familiar with this, mm. uh, even though I understand that a great many people will be. So given that, I do feel like it's on you to set up why we're doing this. This, of course, is Emma by Jane Austen. Mm which we should uh, acknowledge because we'll, I'm sure, end up drawing on this, exists in a whole lot of different forms, in film form, in television form, of course, in the form of the novel. There seem to be so many versions of this. It's, it, it's very unlike our previous choice, which was Succession, which mm-hmm. is current and I suppose you would say pop. Yeah, but still with very, I mean, one of the things that we tried to draw out when we discussed Succession, back in March, would you believe, one of the things we did try to draw out is that Succession does have, I mean, there is a crassness to it. There's an almost uh, prodigious vulgarity to Succession. But at the same time, it has literary aspirations. No, no, yes, I'm not saying, it's prestige television. It is prestige, absolutely. What I mean by pop is it's popular. Yes, it's in the moment. It's massly available. Is that right? Yes, and and it is consumed on a mass scale. Yeah. Or watched on a mass scale. Mm. I don't want to say consumed. And um, so it's very different to this. This is taking us more into the realm of the classic, which I will confess, and this is the reason I never would have thought of doing this. I will confess is not at all what I thought this Not Quite a Book Club was for. Mm. Like in my mind, 
the fun of it was to pick something that just wouldn't get this treatment and then give it this treatment. Mm -hmm. However, uh, you obviously had a different vision and your vision has prevailed. So why don't you begin by setting the terms in that way? So explaining why we're looking at Emma, what it is exactly that uh, you think makes it an appropriate subject for what we're trying to do. Terrific. Well, look, let me just begin with the source material, uh, because that's probably going to be a little bit helpful here. It seems to me that there are three things that we're drawing on in this conversation, and we might move a little bit fluidly among them. Um, Notice I said among and not between. We are trying to be very grammatically correct, uh, given the fact that we're doing Jane Austen. Um, So there is, of course, Jane Austen's 1815 novel itself. Interestingly enough, Willie, I'm not sure if you realize, I mean, she wrote sort of three astonishing novels in three successive years. And it was Emma that was her last published novel during her lifetime. Um, And it's really interesting to me is she wrote in her memoirs when she said about writing Emma, she said, I'm constructing a heroine whom I'm quite sure no one but me will like. And there's something really interesting about that from the outset, because Emma, I mean, she is the heroine. She's the only one of Jane Austen's novels named after a character in the book. She is in many respects at the center of the book. And and there's something problematic about that because she is, I think, a uniquely flawed character, Uh, but at the same time, a character of immense attraction and attractiveness. I I want to come back to that in in just a second. So there's the novel itself that we're going to be drawing on. And I I would just recommend to anybody, if you haven't read Emma, for God's sake, read Emma. I mean, it is an astonishing novel, and I'll, I'll try to give a sense why in just a moment. But I think there are two other really interesting bits of source material here. The one that we will absolutely not be drawing on, and I hereby forbid the actor or this particular version of Emma heretofore to be named again. The Gwyneth Paltrow version of Emma is just astonishingly bad. It seems to me that it is the worst version of a Hollywood treatment of a classic text. Um, Anybody who wants to understand Emma should simply not watch that particular film. There is, however, a more recent film that while I don't think it's the best visual offering of Emma, it is nonetheless a pretty good one. In 2020, Autumn DeWild, her directorial version of Emma, was released. It was filmed, I believe, in New Zealand. Someone can correct me on that, I'm I'm sure. Uh, But it starred Anya Taylor-Joy as Emma, Bill Nye as Mr. Woodhouse. Uh, uh, Bill Nye in anything's great, and he's so great in this. Yeah, he is. I love Bill Nye. I don't think he was right for Mr. Woodhouse, because the thing about Mr. Woodhouse is that he is a paradoxical patriarch, because he is a patriarch in a patriarchal world who has lost his taste for life. He habitually retreats from the world. He's terrified of the world. He tries to shield Emma and everybody within his household from the world. He's a patriarch, but a patriarch for whom everything needs to be done. And so for someone like Bill Nye, who's so full of life, I mean, he's a live wire in whatever he's in, even when there are those very funny moments in the film where he's trying to shield himself from Uh. the ever-present elusive draft. (laughs) Actually, probably the greatest moment in the film is where you have a screen on one side of him, a screen on the other, and he's plunked himself in front of a fire, and all you can see is his face in profile. There is something about that which is astonishingly funny. There's one that's more than two screens, isn't it? There's about three or four in parallel. (laughs) But I I just don't think his energy, his liveliness, the fact that he is so full of life and has such quick wit. I mean, I loved watching him because I love watching him. Yeah. But I don't think he was right. As maybe, maybe that's right. I think I was just so attracted to watching him do it. And the way he was able to capture this mad character. Yeah, and he is quite. Um, yeah, I think was was brilliant. Um, but he's a fascinating character. He is. I was trying to think, what's the right word for him? And it's he's not a hypochondriac. No, he's not. But he has those but, odd tics that he, yeah. that he assimilates into his speech and his gestures, that as soon as he does them, they're not ticks they're little they're little physical expressions of a sense of devilish humor um i can't think of anybody else who does it quite like, quite like he does uh like bill nye you mean. yeah 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 that is true and devilish humor isn't quite the character is it it's it's more is it paranoia it's not quite paranoia it's just i think he just sees threat everywhere there is and this becomes obsessed with things like health yeah there is this wonderful will... moment in the novel which is portrayed quite nicely in the next little source material that I'll mention, where um, uh, at 
Hartsfield, the great home that Mr. Woodhouse presides over. He uh, assembles a large dinner for guests, and there are all sorts of dinners for guests that punctuate Emma. And yet he's, and you know, no, no end to lengths have been taken to ensure that the meal is the picture of opulence and decadence and good taste and culinary refinement. And yet he spends his entire time warning people not to eat this, not to have the custard, not to enjoy the duck. Please, whatever you do, don't that. What I tend to like, he says, is a nice basin of lukewarm gruel. So he's trying to, so, you know, there is that kind of impulse towards hospitality. At the same time, there's a terror for life. And I, I really think that's probably the best way of saying it. He has no taste for the world. And to have a patriarchal world in which the patriarch is terrified of the world. I think mm. there is a contrast there. There's a sense to which Mr. Woodhouse functions as an inescapable backdrop to Emma as a character that doesn't really, that isn't really matched in any of Austen's other novels. See, there, Mr. Bennett uh, in Pride and Prejudice is the proper accompaniment. He's the proper companion to Elizabeth Bennett. They they resonate with one another. They're in harmony together. Here, you could not have a stronger contrast between characters, I think, than between yeah, but, Emma. But isn't the thing about Mr. Woodhouse that everyone ignores him? Well, not quite. We can come back no, to that. No one takes him seriously. Yeah. The, the stuff he warns about, they don't take seriously. Yeah, no, that's true. To that and and Emma's very concerned to do the right thing by him, to look after him, which, of course, comes sharply to the fore at the very end. But... Mm, they're all have, happy to have the duck. Yeah, yeah. But see here, what protects Mr. Woodhouse are the demands of propriety. And that's where he does yes. live yeah. off the reputation of a patriarchal world. Um, he must be not just humored, but treated with the utmost politeness and care and diligence. There is, there is one moment where uh, Mr. Knightley uh, has them all to, to his manner and goes to astonishing lengths to ensure that every one of Mr. Woodhouse's very particular whims and terrors and predilections are met and satisfied. And, and it, it's not grudging obligation. It's a genuine act of the most embracing hospitality. Um, it's also very Mr. Knightley. It is very Mr. Knightley, which let me come back yeah. to that in a second. So I did just want to say that if you have watched Autumn DeWilde's film, it's a good one. It's not a great one. It's infinitely better than that other bit of Hollywood trash that I mentioned before, which just should not even be humored. Um, I, I think the greatest visual depiction of Emma is the four-part BBC adaptation. came out in 2009, and there Romola Garai is a fabulous actor. She plays Emma Woodhouse. Johnny Lee Miller, who people might remember from Trainspotting, he is supremely cast, I think, as Mr. Knightley. Uh, and Michael Gambon, with his great melting face, his kind of passive weariness at the world. I think he is the he is the ultimate uh, Mr. Woodhouse. So anyway, if you really if if you haven't got the time to read it, and you really have to watch something, then Autumn de Wilde's 2021 is good. But just enjoy the BBC. It's it's really 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 exceptional. Mm. Okay, so we've got Emma Woodhouse who is introduced at the very, very, very beginning as famously, I mean, she's famously introduced as being handsome, clever, and rich with a comfortable home and a happy disposition. In other words, she is, I think, the contrast in every way to Mr. Woodhouse. And you get this sense. Never vexed. Never vexed. You get the sense that she has been born into and a world has been constructed around her that is a world of her own. Um, nothing really contradicts her in this world. I'll come back to that in a second. But it's a world in which she has, if you like, free play. She molds the world around her to her wishes. And you have someone like Mr. Woodhouse, who is constantly praising her, is constantly giving in to her, is constantly indulging her fancies with the most abundant praise. It is striking, though, Walid, that the novel begins with the crisis that Emma is confronting over the prospect of her governess and dear friend, Miss Taylor, being married off to a much, elder, a much older gentleman, Mr. Weston. And what's so interesting about the crisis is that she dreads a future of long nights 
without witty and rational conversation, without sociality, uh, without the kind of stimulation and constant prodding that her dear friend, Miss Taylor, provides. In other words, she loves her father. There's no doubt about that, but he's no companion for her. Actually, she says that quite overtly in the first chapter. He's no companion for her. And so there's this idea of the huge manor house, of a world that's been constructed precisely for her and for her liking. And yet as the novel begins, she is on the precipice of boredom, of not having her great intelligence met and essentially her being left without really anything to do. And that, of course, is the spark that sets off the sequence of events that anybody who knows anything about Emma knows, which is her desire to matchmake, to try to make the world and the company and the society around her after her own image. Uh, having been so successful in joining Mr. Weston, an elderly widower, with her governess, uh, Miss Taylor, soon to be Mrs. Weston, um, having been so successful with that, she sets about doing something similar with other people. Well, was she successful with that? With Weston and Miss Taylor? Yeah, this was Knightley's argument, wasn't it? He was saying, just because something occurs to you and and then it happens, it doesn't yes. mean that... <laughs> that you did it, that you were right. the active so, agent in the process. That's right. Yeah, That's so, right. so immediately what is set up is this possibility that Emma with her sense of her own great talent, is deluding herself. Yes, that's right. And I think that, I mean, that is, very much plays out, I think, um, throughout, but also t especially towards the end, and that becomes clear to her uh, as much as anything. But can I just make an observation about yeah. Emma suddenly not having her, her powerful intellect fulfilled? Because mm. it, it's only partially that, isn't it? Yes, it is. Her that's intellect right. is powerful. Because... What she seems incapable of doing is entertaining herself. Yeah, yeah. Of stimulating her mind you got that exactly on her right. own through horrible pastimes like reading. <laughs> right, so reading is off the table. You know, there's those moments where, you know, she might read some small amount, a page or whatever. And, and then put it down quickly in exasperation. Done, done quite enough reading for today. Yes. Let's right. go do something else. And so she's... A classic extrovert in that she needs other people. That yeah. She draws her energy from other people and um, she's at a loss without them. Mm. And you're right, not her father. That's not, it has to be a different kind of engagement. And then it seems to me what happens is as a result of that, um, that character trait and perhaps of her own overinflated sense of her talent when it comes to matchmaking, mm. she's constantly sucking people into her orbit. That's right in ways that she thinks will benefit them, but are probably more in the end about benefiting her. Exactly. And the classic character in that regard, the character for whom I'm, I probably feel most sorry throughout the whole saga mm. is Harriet Smith. Yep. Who, I mean, I just kept thinking this poor, like, what did she do? <laughs> what did she do to find herself in this situation where... This person, Emma, who she had nothing really to do with, mm. suddenly starts behaving towards her and she accepts, I think because there is a, you know, a status disparity, starts engaging with her as though they, they are the closest of friends and have been for as long as they can remember. And then she, she proceeds to give her a whole lot of courtship advice and meddle in all sorts of affairs to do with her potential marriage or her search for a, a, a husband. Mm. And at every turn, it just becomes a, a disaster. Yeah, we, we should clarify that Harriet Smith, I mean, not only, there's something quite beautiful and charming about her name, but it is overtly a plain name. She is a young woman of no means. She's either 17 or 18. And in the world of Jane Austen's novels, she has the added disgrace or the further difficulty of having unknown paternity. We don't know. Who Although Emma is convinced that her paternity must have been noble. Yes. But I think that what, what's heartbreaking here is that Harriet is interesting to Emma insofar as Harriet provides a degree of amusement to Emma, which means that when a, for all we can tell, a noble, benevolent, 24-year-old farmer named Mr. Martin, who uh, works some of the farms on uh, Mr. Knightley's lands, uh, when he begins the process of courtship, 
in the most brutal fashion. And I really do mean that word. Emma heaps disdain on the very idea of Mr. Martin. And in one of, I think, the most cruel acts of coercive persuasion, uh, she coerces Harriet to see Mr. Martin similarly as beneath her, as unworthy of her, and begins fanning the flames of another attraction, a different attraction, namely the vicar, Mr. Elton. And anybody who knows anything about Emma's novels, uh, sorry, about Jane Austen's novels, knows that Austen has a particular disdain for vicars. Uh, if you think of Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice, but I think the worst of them all is Mr. Elton, who is, by all accounts, dashing and well-spoken, but he's, he's, he's unrestrained in his language. You know, being a vicar is the way that someone of relatively low means shoehorns their way into higher society. And so Emma is trying to set the two of them up. I want to bring our guest in because it's time for us to, I think, get into the slightly taller grass of the novel. But there are two things that I think, for two other just brief planks that we need to put in place before we can go much further. The narration of Emma is really curious to me because it is third person. In the novel, Emma is spoken about in the third person. There's no I. Um, and yet the entire novel is narrated from the perspective of Emma. So we know more or less what she knows. We are su surprised by the things that she is surprised by. Uh, we are given access to her inner life and to her inner dialogue and inner deliberation and inner confusion unlike any other character. So the whole thing is narrated from her perspective, which means we also share in her, well, in two things. We share in her ignorance, so what she doesn't know, we don't know. But we also share in her prejudice. So if she sees things wrongly, then for the Certainly. most... Yeah. yeah, yeah, the readers share, uh, see things wrongly as well, which means that if she suffers from a kind of... I'm using this term advisedly, but a kind of moral debilitation of the eyes when she sees characters wrongly and ex is exasperated by them. We, too, see characters wrongly and are exasperated by them, which means that her process of moral development and betterment over the course of the novel also becomes the reader's process, or it should be the reader's process of moral development over the course of the novel. So to my it's mind, it's also more dramatic, right? Because when mm. you discover those mistakes, they yes. they have a force to them. Although there are clues, this is the funny thing: there are clues that Emma can't see that the attentive reader can see. I mean, right. no attentive reader could think that Mr. Elton was in the slightest interested in Harriet Smith. No mm. attentive reader would think towards the end of the novel that Harriet Smith was really interested in Frank Churchill. Um, so there are these clues that lead you in a different direction. They're little exchanged glances. But really, those little clues are given usually with a nod to maybe someone with greater powers of insight, like, for instance, Mr. Knightley. Mm. Can I just uh, ask you one question Please. before we bring in our guest? When you speak about the brutality mm. of Emma's cajoling, I think you said coercion. Coercion. Uh, it was coercion, of, yes. Of Harriet Smith. Is it well-meaning? Because I think it is. I think she looks at someone like Harriet Smith and says, no, you deserve a higher level of gentleman. Hmm. Yep. And I'm not here to destroy your dreams for my fun, although Mr Knightley makes the very poignant observation that these people are not your playthings, hmm. right? And she's, sorry, he's, he's there talking about her attempts to match Harriet Smith and uh, the vicar, Mr Elton. Mm. But I think she genuinely thinks she's doing a good selfless thing. Mm. I don't think she's being cruel deliberately. It might have a cruel effect, but I don't think she's setting out to be cruel. Uh, and that's why I think the key element of this is the fact that she doesn't know how bad she is at this. Yeah. Look, and uh, that's significant because this takes us to our great moral disagreement. Mm. I think uh, intentions matter. Mm. It doesn't mean that she doesn't create chaos where she goes, that there isn't a mess everywhere mm. <laughs> when she gets involved, including in her own life. But there is something, it, it would be different to do that in a mean way. 
although she does have meanness in her at times. Yes, she does. But it would be different to do that in a mean way than it would be to do that in a well-meaning but misguided, self-deluded way. Yeah. Look, I think, I think you're right. I think there's no obvious malice. She's not being trivial with Harriet. She's not toying with Harriet. That really would be cruel. Um, she does have an unreasonably low regard for Mr. Martin. That, I think, really is jaundiced. It really is prejudiced. Uh, um, Mr. Martin, the, the kind of the lower yes. class farmer. And her low regard of people in lower, of lower status does yes. become a bit of a theme. Yes, yeah. it does. Yes, it does. She does have a high regard for Miss Smith. And I think one of the things that is yeah. interesting is for the most part throughout the novel, Mr. Knightley, and I, I should say this is one of the things that doesn't come through clearly in many television or film versions. Mr. Knightley is 36 years old. Emma's 21. Um, he is self-reliant, well-read, well-educated, restrained. He's also a Kantian virtue theorist. It's very, very, very interesting. I'll, I'll try to persuade you of that soon. Um, but he sees things for the most part clearly. He sees through facades and charades clearly. Um, and so for the most part, for the most part... At the part, same time as being pragmatic. Yes, it's true. So for the most part, I think his judgment is very good, whereas her judgment tends to be uh, naive or a little bit superficial. The one point where that doesn't follow is that he has far too little regard for Harriet Smith. In fact, his description of Harriet Smith is dreadful uh, when he commends Mr. Martin as the proper husband for Harriet Smith. Uh, he says that, you know, she brings nothing but a pretty face and a relatively good temper. Um, so, of course, he's the better match for her. Now, where I would... Uh, look, we're always going to disagree about the issue of intention because, to my mind, it doesn't matter. Well, it probably does matter in this case, but it doesn't matter as much as you might matter. think that, that Emma is not it, simply playing with Harriet. But what I think is the case is that she is too susceptible to flattery. Emma is too yeah. susceptible to flattery, and that's what lets her be too easily deceived by Mr. Elton. Anybody with any insight or wisdom or moral vision would be able to see the pretense of this man. Uh, Emma cannot, and so she cannot see both his own viciousness, his lack of virtue, and ultimately his cruelty and his contemptuousness that he, that he displays towards Harriet later on. So I, I think there is a degree of vice. It's not just lack of bad intention. There is also, yes, she has a high regard for Harriet, but she is self-deceived when it comes mm. to Mr. Elton. And yes, also has too high a regard for herself. Yes, it's true. In her view of the world. True. Shall we bring in a guest? Yes, please. Great. Our guest, uh, it's a, actually a tremendous honour to have her on the show. Gillian Dooley is an honorary senior research fellow in the Department of English at Flinders University, a very, very fine writer on two writers that I love dearly. One is Iris Murdoch and the other is... Jane Austen. Gillian, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I'm the one who's, who's honoured, honestly. Um, I want to begin with, and we're not really asking you questions. In, in, in the spirit of a kind of book club, we really are trying to sort of mutually enlighten one another. Uh, we stand to be much more mutually enlightened uh, by you than you by us, I, I fear. Um, but there is one character that we haven't mentioned yet. And to my mind, she is, in fact, the moral center of the novel. Our regard for this one character determines so much of the way that we see the rest of the novel. And that's Miss Bates. Now, and anybody who's seen a, a visual version of Emma is used to Miss Bates being kind of a ludicrous, horse-faced unattractive, uninteresting, ultimately incredibly tedious character who talks too much, who talks the ears off people, and who usually elicits comedic moments, eye rolls, exasperations. But it just strikes I me... I think I disagree with that, by the way. Mm. Well, Waleed, perhaps you've seen the Autumn de Wilde movie where she was so beautifully portrayed. Yeah, I agree. Yes, she's annoying. Like that, That's obviously part of the story, and she talks incessantly... But I see someone that is not a ludicrous person. I see someone with an astonishingly good heart. Well, in, yes. in the spirit, I mentioned what I did before about the particular character of narration, that for the most part, the novel is narrated through, uh, through Emma's perspective. But there is an, 
an extraordinary description of Miss Bates right at the beginning of the novel. This is in the first section, in the first part, in the third chapter, where Jane Austen says that Miss Bates enjoyed a most uncommon degree of popularity for a woman neither young, handsome, rich, nor married. In other words, she's the opposite in every way to Emma, except for both of them not being married. Miss Bates stood the very worst predicament in the world for having much of the public favor, and yet she had no intellectual superiority to make atonement for herself or to frighten those who might hate her into outward respect. In other words, she has nothing in the world and there's nothing about her intellect or her wit to prevent people from being outwardly contemptuous of her. I think we should come back to that later. She, need, she never boasted either beauty or cleverness. Her youth passed without distinction and her middle of life was devoted to the care of a failing mother and the endeavor to make as small an income go as far as possible. But listen to this. And yet she was a happy woman, a woman whom no one named without goodwill. It was her own universal goodwill and contented temper which worked such wonders. She loved everybody, was interested in everybody's happiness, quick-sighted to everybody's merits, thought herself a most fortunate creature and surrounded with blessings in such an excellent mother and so many good neighbors and friends. Mm. It seems to me that there is a dare that's given mm. us right yes, at the outset yes. of the novel. Yes. This is what this woman is like. And you yes. are going to see her for most of the rest of the novel through the eyes of Emma, who finds her endlessly exasperating and indulges in certain forms of charity and charitable giving, but almost with a certain, I wouldn't exactly say duress, but the shallowest of duty. In other words, it seems to me that the moral dare of the novel is to see Miss Bates, not simply through the demands of propriety that would demand that we treat her with a degree of outward respect and civility, but to see her through the demands of morality namely to see her as perhaps the single most virtuous and mm. overtly good character in the entire novel. So to my mind, I, I mean, I read almost the entire thing through Miss Bates. Gillian, where do you want to take us? That's, that's wonderful. That, that is really fantastic. And, and that, as you say, that is definitely not Emma's point of view that we're hearing there. Um, I would perhaps like to contrast that passage that you just read with the with her first her, her first encounter with Harriet Smith where we have the most beautiful example of Austen's what is called free and direct style so that technique by which we enter we enter and leave Emma's point of view at you know at, at Austen's sort of pleasure of the narrator's pleasure um, and when she meets Harriet Smith, I think this might be relevant to both to the discussion that you were having just before I joined. Um, she found her altogether in very engaging, showing so proper and becoming a deference, seeming so pleasantly grateful for being admitted to Hartfield. Encouragement should be given. The friends from whom she had just parted, though very good sort of people, must be doing her harm. They must be coarse and unpolished and very unfit to be the intimates of a girl who wanted only a little more knowledge and elegance to be quite perfect. She would notice her, that's Emma. Mm. She would notice her, she would improve her. It would be an interesting and certainly a kind undertaking, highly becoming her own situation in life her leisure and powers. So that's Emma in full flight. You know, that's that's the extent of her self-knowledge. At this stage, which is very early in the novel, in Chapter 3, um, just after that description of Miss Bates, actually, we have this self-satisfied young woman. And then just shortly afterwards, you know, she's this is a supper party. Supper is served and then with an alacrity beyond the common impulse of a spirit which was never indifferent to the credit of doing everything well and attentively, with the real goodwill of a mind delighted with its own ideas, she did then do all the honours of the meal. Hmm. So that is Austen coming in and, and gently nudging the, the reader and saying, read this, understand how... It, important it is for her to think well of herself and um, that, you know, as long as her ideas are um, 
being satisfied, then she's happy. But the the novel, it seems to me, is a process of those that self-satisfaction and that that yeah, that feeling of, of being, as you say, able to um, make things happen in the way that will give her satisfaction. Um, but also which will be to the benefit broken. of others, right? Yes, so it's it's this sort of do-gooder thing and the, that becomes broken gradually through through the novel. Jane Fairfax is uh, one example of it and Harriet Smith is another and and then Miss Bates. Uh, so it, she, she becomes kind of broken down um, and able to be open to the world as the novel proceeds. So, Gillian, I, I'm interested in whether or not you think there's something nonetheless admirable in Emma. So, yes, she's, I suppose you would say, full of herself. Yes. But she genuinely wants to help. Yes. She genuinely believes that just by providing Harriet Smith with this assistance, she can become this perfect person. The person yes. she deserves to be. Mm. There's a certain altruism there at the same, but it's twinned with a kind of egoism. And yes. that's the tension, right? That, that's the tension yes. of Emma. Yes. It's the egoism yes. that makes her unable to see clearly what she's not good at and what either her own blindness. Yes. But the altruism is what puts her on the path that leads to entangling right. herself with these lives. But then at the same time, as in demonstrated in the passage you just read, She's kind of interested in Harriet because Harriet seems so happy to be with her. <laughs> so, mm. I, yes, well, Harriet is is so flattered because Emma Emma Woodhouse is the is the the patroness of Highbury. You know, she's the grandest young woman in the village, and Harriet is kind of nobody at, at, at this little school. So that ability to patronise is irresistible for Emma. And uh, for Harriet, you know, my goodness me, Miss Woodhouse is taking notice of me. You know, it's it's, it's a, a huge honour. But that's the condition yet, of Emma's interest, isn't it? Yes. No, sorry. That, that is precisely the point, Willie. I mean, just remember mm. that, for instance, when Harriet does not quite give up on her interest in Mr Martin, and there are those sort of terrible moments where, you know, Emma's saying, I wouldn't surely tell you what to think or how to respond to such an mm. invitation to courtship. And yet leaves mm. these kind of terrible long pauses where Harriet yes. is kind of inclining herself towards Emma. Please give me some direction. Give me some direction. I mean, well, something that doesn't quite come through clearly enough, I believe, in the, in the television or film versions mm. is mm. when Emma says quite overtly, should you find yourself in Mr. Martin's company, you most certainly will not find yourself in mine. In other mm. words, the world is divided. Either you can go there or you can be with me. So there is something about that that goes, I think, beyond mere altruism, even if Emma does yes. think that her company is so elevated and so morally superior that you know she's doing uh, Harriet an, an intrinsic good in insisting that you should be with me more than with him. Yet at the same time, there is something about that that I think that's simply awful. Uh, and yes. that not only is a symptom of misperception and of the inherent goodness yes. or rightness of Emma's world. But, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you might not like this, Gillian, but, but whenever I think of Emma, I think of Iris Murdoch's description uh, of the fat, relentless ego, the ego at the center yes. of a world of its own oh, making. Yes. And I think Absolutely. Harriet ultimately yes. is the victim over and over and over and over again yes. of precisely yes. that egoism. Yes, yes, that's right. Those dreadful, cold responses she get, Harriet gets when when she asks Emma for advice, and um, she won't actually, you know, say, oh, for goodness' sake, don't marry him. He's way beneath you. He, she makes those those sort of insinuations about how how the society we couldn't be. Um, you know, there's a there's a bit where where she says that they're the sort of people with whom I have nothing to do. You know, they're they're prosperous, so they don't need my charity. But they're not, you know, they're not refined enough for us to visit, and that's the world that she lived in. Can I can I put something, Walid and Gillian, to to the two of you? It goes without saying that when we think about Jane Austen's novels, we think of them as as romances. I mean, these are the progenitors of the rom com of the Hollywood rom coms. Mm. Um, uh, I'm not saying that that's a that that's an accurate description, but I'm saying that when most people think, I mean, when my wife loves Jane Austen, but she loves Jane Austen because they're rom coms. Mm. Um, what makes this particular novel so strange is that the function that so Emma has this self satisfied world, a world 
where she is at the center and mm -hmm. her actions are more or less governed by her own misperceptions. I mean, it is worth saying that Emma's yeah. world is a world of ciphers and charades and yes. riddles that need to be unraveled and clues that need to be discerned. So you could say that it's kind of easy for her to misperceive the world, but nonetheless, she lives... There's also a refusal to speak directly, right? That's yeah, the thing. I mean, that's And that right. shows up that's in the right. great misunderstanding between Harriet and her at the very end about who Harriet's in love with. Yeah, that's yeah, true. We, like that, we, we mm. will not speak his name. Of course, they're speaking yes. about different people. Yeah. So there's yes. almost a determination not to be clear. And, and, and propriety demands almost that you not be mm. forthright, you know, mm. be clear. There yes. is one character, yeah. however who stands outside of the veil, mm. who yes. sees things, I think, uncommonly clearly, and that's Mr. Knightley. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, already there's the clue in the name. He's going to be a virtuous character. There is that moment, I, I thought of you immediately, Willie, when I, when I read it, uh, <laughs> where Mr. Knightley says, um, you know, one should never take pleasure in seeing dancing, in viewing dancing. Fine dancing, I believe, like virtue, must be its own reward. I mean, he speaks all the time of obligation and duty. He's a Kantian virtue theorist. But he's also Emma's moral tutor. Everybody flatters her, except for him. Mm. He is yeah. her scold. Yeah. He, is, yeah. he is the one who reproves her. And yes. you have those moments then of self-reflection on Emma's part where Knightley says this, it gets her hackles up. Yes. She responds aggressively Later in her moments of self-reflection, she knows that he's right, but she hates him for yes. it all the more. So <laughs> I don't I'm, think she ever hates him. Well, 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 no, but but she certainly resents him. I mean, she, it, it does refer to her moments of of habitual uh, of habitual deference to his judgment, but she still oh. resents the fact when he when he scolds her. So my my question for the two of you is, if this is about Emma's progress to some extent. And if Miss Bates and Harriet Smith, and to some extent Jane Fairfax, are the litmus test of her progress, how she responds to the three of them, how she treats the three of them. And if Mr. Knightley is her guide through this world of egoism and self-deception, it seems to me that the romance element of it is almost entirely submerged. Certainly in the novel, it's almost entirely submerged right until the very end. Does, yeah. this, does this mean we ought to think about the relationship between Emma and Knightley along more of a moral axis mm. rather, than, rather than a romantic one? Well, there's a lot in that. Um, I would say that most of her novels are, are not, I, I suppose perhaps they're romances, they're comedies in the sense that they always end with the marriage, that the heroine always marries, um, or two of them. But they are not courtship novels. They're, they're not novels where a woman is looking for a husband mm. or, or a man is looking for a wife. Um, you know, the courtship element of these novels is often one sentence um, in the passive, you know, towards the end of the novel. So that they are much more about the development of relationships, of the, the maturing of characters than they are about, about you know, finding a mate. You know, Emma, Emma for example, is no, has disclaims any interest in marriage. She doesn't want to, she says she doesn't want to get married until that wonderful moment when it darts through her like the, with the speed of an arrow that, Mr. Knightley must marry no one but herself, but mm. that's near, very, very near the end. But, um, you know, I've got this, when he does finally propose, Mr. Knightley says, if I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more. But you know what I am. You hear nothing but the truth from me. I have blamed you and lectured you and you have borne it as no other woman in England exactly. would have borne it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he knows her. She does take it from him. She often bats it back at him and, and tries to be playful. And, and it's always a little bit um, awkward when that happens. But, you know, I believe that there's there's always that sexual tension between them. Uh, and and maybe that you don't see that, you don't get that on the first reading of the novel. But there are constant clues that, Emma is always thinking about what Mr. Knightley thinks of her. 
even when she's actually, you know, under the delusion that she's in love with Frank Churchill, mm-hmm. um, she she still has always an eye out for Mr Knightley's, you know, what he's thinking, what he's up to. Is he looking at Jeff, Jane Fairfax in that? Why is he looking at her in that way? Why is he behaving like that? You know, it, and, and she's he's always at the front of her or, you know, not far from the front of her mind. So... Um, yeah, because he's the moral tutor. So it makes sense that she would look yeah. to him to try to decipher so much of the world. Um, Gillian, so what then are we to make? I mean, if we are to accept Scott's argument that Emma is this morally flawed character, Knightley is this morally upright character, what are we to make of two facts? One, that he confesses that he's been scolding her and lecturing her as though he accepts it might have been a bit unfair. And well, in the end falls in love with her. I don't think he and, does. I don't think he does. Well, you've borne it as no other woman in England would. Yes. Like you don't bear something. We are leaving out something really important here. Um, I mean, because we're coming to the end of the conversation, I feel I just need to raise it very, very briefly. Mm. Everything in the novel is working towards the fateful picnic on Box Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There's this moment in E.M. Mm-hmm. Forster's uh, Howard's End where he describes the two central characters in a moment of moral encounter as standing at the precipice. Mm-hmm. Um, after this moment, mm-hmm. everything will be different. Mm-hmm. And at Box Hill, they quite literally are at the precipice. Um, mm-hmm. You remember the initial description of Miss Bates says that she had no intellect to protect her from being mm-hmm. treated outwardly with um, with some kind of despicable... Uh, intent or hatred. And Emma, in a piece of stunning, I think, cruelty, humiliates Miss Bates in front of a company of gathered people. Uh, Like he does nowhere else in the novel afterwards, Mr. Knightley pulls her to the side and says, you did not violate, effectively, I'm paraphrasing, you did not violate the rules of propriety because she's beneath you, but you violated the rules of morality because how can you not understand her position in life? How can you not understand how much she has to bear? Yes, she is a yes. mixture of goodness and ridiculousness. And if it was a woman of higher estate, then we could perhaps ridicule it. But for her... Yeah, and I give you leeway. Yes, yes. Past, yeah. So, yes. and it's after then Mr. Knightley hears from Mr. Woodhouse. And I mean, Emma's response, by the way, to that, she's inconsolable mm. for the better part mm. of a chapter and a half. And it's after Mr. Yes. Knightley hears from Mr. Woodhouse that she had gone on a visit to Miss Bates Mm, to try to make amends. There's a beautiful description of his glowing regard towards her. It's like she took that next step in her moral development. And it's at that moment he takes her hand, he nearly kisses it. And to my mind, that's the moment where, if I can put it this ridiculous way, the possibility of romance between them is possible because the two of them can look at one another Except yeah. he does in mutual admiration. He does confess that he discovered what was always there. So he obviously had an affection for her before. Obviously. That he, and, I mean, it's, he says he loved her since she was 13 or something, when, and, you know, perhaps we gloss over that these days. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, he was obviously the thorough gentleman and waited um, to 10 years or whatever it is, not quite that. And the the thing I think is he that that he knew perfectly well that he loved her, and his sort of Achilles' heel is his jealousy of Frank Churchill, who Emma flirts with, um, and who causes well not causes but who collaborates with Emma in that cruelty in at Box Hill. Mm. So he believes that Emma, you know, he believes one of the things false beliefs that Knightley has is that. Emma is in love with Frank Churchill, and uh, it's 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 when he finds out that that wasn't that's not true, that that he's the way is clear, but that that jealousy of Frank Churchill certainly mm. affects his judgment. So does that mean that for everything we've said about Emma, and even allowing for the possibility of that moral transformation, which I'm not sure was a transformation, maybe that's the point, um, mm. that. Knightley saw in Emma a certain virtue. Yes. That yes. she, he, no matter what she was up to, however misguided or self-centered she was, he could see 
that beneath it yeah. all was someone of good character. He knew she had the potential to be to to be a good person. Well, the way that he describes it is he says mm. there is a constant conflict within her. There is a mm. vain spirit and there mm. is a serious spirit. And he says when yeah. she goes astray with one, the other brings it under check. And so his intention throughout the novel is to build up the resources of the serious mm. spirit to check, essentially, her egoism. Yes. I, I do think, though, given Emma's patterns of speech, given her capacity for self-reflection after that moment at Box Hill, mm. yes. I really do think there is a transformation that takes place, though. There's no, there's no way. It's, yeah. not, it's not just that her better inner self comes to the fore. There really is a moment where she sees the world and her obligations that, more clearly. That is the big moment, but there, there are other moments um, with regard to Jane Fairfax. Yes, true. Um, and yeah, there are other moments sort of throughout the novel where she, there's, there's, a, there's a chink in her armour, as it were, and, and that, that builds up to that, that scene in Box Hill, which is the, the magnificent. I mean, this novel is, is, is the, you know, there's these sort of set, these incidents, these set pieces where mm. each each time something transformational or potentially transformational happens. And it's also set very clearly against the background of the seasons, the progression of the seasons. Mm. I yes. mean, people people should pay very, very careful attention when you read it to the, the lapsing of the seasons, to the interplay of day and night, of despair and hopefulness, despair at nighttime, yes. hopefulness with the coming of the sun. It's just, yes. it, it's a remarkable achievement, I think of moral yes. provocation and and both the monstrous human capacity of cruelty, but also the capacity of the reproof and transformation of one's friends, of the provocation of one's mm. friends. Of, of a love, of a loving friend. Yes, of a loving friend. So well the, fact, the, the fact that love is so important, and that's very Murdochian, of course. Yes, it is. As well. Yeah. And the 2020 film makes the seasons explicit. Yes, it literally yeah. breaks the film up into the season. Which I actually yes. quite liked. I did like As it. As you go through it. Um, yeah. God, we didn't get to talk about the class elements of it, which oh I think are fascinating, especially the way that yes. Knightley conceives of it yeah. um, and the the way she chi he chides Emma on that basis. Um, we didn't talk about Churchill uh, and no. Jane Fairfax and that whole deceit. And, yes. and I don't know, should we feel sympathetic towards the circumstances that led to that? or About Mrs. Elton? We... Mrs. Elton? I mean, we didn't, oh my God, no. let's not talk about <laughs> Mrs. Elton. Or Mr. Elton, frankly. Um, well, we, did, we frankly didn't have time. I mean, because it's such a short show, we didn't get anywhere. But Gillian, thank you so much for giving us access to your insights today. It's been really oh, great fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Gillian Dooley, you say, senior... there's so much more to say. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, there is endlessly more to say. Gillian Dooley, Senior senior Research Fellow in the Department of English at Flinders University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, not quite a book club, cultural artefact club <laughs> discussion thing, whatever it's called. Um, we'll see you with a more regular Minefield next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.